Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first edition of the Brazil Around podcast on the World Football Index. We're sort of in this, an extension of the South American Football Show, uh, and we hope to do it as a monthly pod, although if there's interest, we might do it bi-weekly. Joining me on the pod will be a regular in the form of a very familiar voice in the form of Austin Miller. Uh, you may know him from the, the South American Football Show and the Libertadores pods. Austin, here we go. First pod. How are you today? I'm doing quite well. You left out the spotlight pods, uh, which I've been battering your inbox with, recording those at a nearly three-weekly basis. So uh, I hope the listeners do enjoy hearing my voice, because unfortunately, they've had to probably deal with a lot of it over this summer break when uh, when everything goes off in Europe and, and we're, the only, we're the only show left in town, I guess. <laughs> WFI's starting to creep back. Well, all the pods are sort of coming back this week, and... Uh, you know, a bit of transfer rumors and so on. So so my inbox, sadly, has been starting to get full again and my lovely month off has, has, has gone. But delighted we have an excellent guest this week in the form of Tim Stillman, who's a bit of a, a Brazilian enthusiast. It's your first time, and for the life of me, I don't know why it's taken this long to have you on. So first of all, you are very, very welcome to be here. How are you today? Fine, fine. Thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Um, regular listener here as well to the South American Football Show. Really enjoying the... Uh, Spotlight pods, particularly the one, the recent one on Luan of uh, Gremio, thought that was really, really good. So, yeah, I, I do a ton of pods usually about Arsenal. So this is um, this is this is really good for me. This is really um, I'm really looking forward to speaking about something else, to be honest. I can understand your pain of the last season. <laughs> I suffer similarly following Liverpool. So you're in good company. But but listen, let, let's get get straight into it. And we'll, we'll start off with a bit of a look at Serie A in Brazil. Corinthians at the moment. Eight points clear of the the chasing pack, and you know even with sixteen games gone, uh, you know Austin, it's starting to look ominous for the rest of the league. You know that they've, I think they've only conceded once in their last ten games. You know uh, players like Joe, who you know would would be a laughing stock in Europe to be to be fair at this moment in time, far exceeding expectations this season, and they're a damn decent side. But it's very difficult to see, even after sixteen games, anyone catching them. It really is. Uh, the numbers speak for themselves with Corinthians. As you said, 16 played. They've won 12. They've drawn four. They've yet to lose in the league. They've scored t- just 26 goals, but they've only conceded seven, um, which is pretty much far and away best in the league. 40 points won. Uh, they've not lost in now 30 matches. They had that stretch where they didn't concede for a while, then did concede against Paranaense, and then straight away. Um, we're back to their not conceding ways. They had a bit of a of a stretch where they drew twice, and that actually allowed Gremio to pull the gap to six. Uh, but then this weekend went Corinthians' way. They defeated Fluminense by their almost typical score of one nil, and Gremio were held one one by São Paulo on Monday night, and that stretched that lead back out to eight. What's been most impressive about Corinthians for me is, as you said, they're not exactly a standout side in terms of individual talent. Um, no doubt there are fantastic players within this side. Joe particularly has been quite impressive. I'd be stunned if he did not get a Brazil call-up uh, in the next international window. That's how well he's been playing domestically for Chimão. Uh, Jadson is, is a very good midfield player as well. But what's made them so good is just the collective spirit that they play with. Um, Fabio Caili, their manager, took over at the start of the year. Uh, he's a disciple of Cheech. He's spent plenty of time working for the man who's done wonders with the Brazilian national team. And really from then, they've 
kind of set in their ways. They're going to defend really, really well. They're going to hit out on the counter. They'll take possession against lesser teams. But in every big match, Corinthians knows how they want to play. And thus far, they've been able to play in that style and with great success. It's the collective spirit, I think, that has made them so dangerous. Uh, Casio is back to seemingly on the upswing as a goalkeeper. He had a stretch where... For about a year and a half, he he definitely had some weaknesses, but he's played really well. Fagner, their right back, who is the number two right back for the Brazilian national team, has been very, very strong. Their central defense pairing of the Paraguayan Fabian Balbuena and Pablo has been very impressive. If there is a weakness for Corinthians, Dave, I think it is their depth. They're not a particularly deep team, but they benefit by the fact that they've already crashed out of the Copa do Brasil. That's their one negative result this year. And they didn't qualify for the Copa Libertadores last year. So they're really not bothered with any continental competition. They are in the Sulamericana, but I think they'd trade a knockout there for the right to run away with this title. And at this point, that's what it looks like they're going to do. And, you know, I'll come across it, Tim, because... You know, Brazil <clears throat> league and, and Brazilian football, you know, it, it begs more questions than it answers sometimes. You know, one one team can be fantastic one season, they're stripped of all their assets, and you never know which way it's going to go. And, you know, I know, you, I think you're a Gallo fan, mm. you know, sitting in 13th at the minute, and they were a yeah. team last season, and, and on paper, that is a much, much stronger outfit than than sitting in 13th. You know, you imagine they, these guys are GCs every time. What, what's going on there at the moment? Maybe you could fill us in on, on, on yeah. what's happened with Gallo. Well, with, with Atletico, what we've been really used to for the last four or five years is a team that is absolutely formidable at home at the Independencia. And uh, this year, we've only won three games, I think, at the Independencia so far. And actually, our away form's been much better, um, which is a complete turnaround from, from what we're used to. But I think the biggest thing is, yes, on paper, there's lots of really good players there and lots of very recognisable names, but it's a really unbalanced squad, um, particularly in the forward department. We've got five or six kind of, you know, creative number 10 types, Cazares, uh, Otero, Maloney, Valdivia, Robinho, and they're all exactly the same and they all do exactly the same thing in exactly the same way. And then the problem is, if you've got, it's all very well having like five kind of creative number tens float, floating around and trying to create opportunities. That's fine. But then we've got two strikers in Fredge and Rafael Mora, who are, who are both very good strikers, but they're both target men. So they don't really play their best with these kind of creative number 10 types. And uh, so it, it's it's just really, really unbalanced. And what's been happening as well with when uh, Roger was manager, whenever things are going wrong, he can't make a substitution to change anything because he looks at his bench and he's got good players, but they're all exactly the same as the players he's got out on the pitch. So he tries to change Fredge with Rafael Mora, who is exactly the same and does exactly the same thing. And, and there's some, I just think there's some real imbalance there. Also, at the back, there have been a lot of injuries. Uh, Marcos Horsha, at right back, one of the most reliable performers over the last five years, has been injured. Um, so has Luan, the right winger, and he's the only forward Gallo have got that does something a little bit different. And those two had a great partnership down the right, and they've both been out for lengths of time this year. And I think also what's really happened is we're still quite reliant on the captain, Leonardo Silva, at centre-half. He's still the best centre-half we have, and he's 37 years old, and he can't play more than two games without getting a calf or a hamstring injury. And really, he looks ready for the knacker yard. 
um, at the moment. He lo- he looks ready for retirement. But we've got to go to a stage now where we stop relying on him as a first team player and perhaps transition him into more of a guy who's good to have around the training ground as as a kind of an off the field character, as a as a kind of symbol of the club, rather than trying to rely on him. Um, and put him in the first team and then lose him for three weeks and put him back and have all this chopping and changing and transition at the back. So it's a little bit of a mess in there. And it's the same in midfield, actually. We brought in uh, Elias over the close season. He's a, that was a really good signing. He's a really good player. But he's very, very similar to Rafael Carioca, who's already there. So the two of them just kind of bump into each other. And in trying to do exactly the same thing, they kind of stunt one another and it's basically, it's, it's a fairly typical story in Brazil. This is just what happens when you try to build a squad, when you change your manager all the time and you've got five different managers that have put this squad together and probably a couple of directors who, you know, tried to go for some big names like Valdivia. I love Valdivia. He's been one of my favourite players in Brazil over the last few years. But we already had five players exactly like him. It was a really unnecessary signing. And I get the impression it wasn't the coach's signing. Um, so and and as a result as well, there seems to be some disharmony in the squad between the players. Uh, Leonardo Silva kind of admitted on I think Instagram this week that the players didn't agree with the sacking of Roger. So it it just doesn't really seem like a happy club. So I mean at the moment it it's just um, it's a really unbalanced, a bit of a mess of a team to watch, and and they're about where they deserve to be because they're they're a bit of a schizophrenic outfit, but. On the kind of upside, um, they've been pretty decent away from home. And this week, they they go to Botafogo in the Copa do Brasil with a, with a 1-0 lead from the home leg. And uh, if they can replicate some of those better away performances in the second leg, they might have a chance to progress in that. And then that and the Libertadores will obviously be the focus now because I think, um, well, certainly there's no chance of the title and maybe even the G6 at the moment might even be a little bit far away as well. And and the whole time I've lived down here seven years, and and Monero for me can can enchant you with their football. And then the next week it's like they've met in the car park before a game. And it seems to have been it seems to be a thing that, that's been running fairly constant um with Atletico Monero. Whether it be the change of management as you rightly cited there, because it is just it's a merry go round down here in Brazil. But do you think that that's just what it is? It's just a fact that you know so many managers, so many different players bought by different managers. There's no, there, there's no consistency. There is is the reason why they are so are inconsistent on the pitch. Yeah, absolutely. And and when they hire new managers as well, they tend to be completely different types of manager. So you go from, you know, someone who's they because Atletico strength is attacking. They they've been a fairly top heavy squad, I think, for a while, and so you get a fairly enterprising manager who kind of goes all out attack and then that doesn't quite work so they go for a more conservative organized um, coach and then that doesn't quite work because it doesn't suit the players and they keep kind of flip-flopping um, backwards and forwards I mean I, I really liked uh, Roger at Gremio I thought he did a very good job there and I thought he was pretty unfortunate to be sacked and so I was quite excited um, when we got him in but I mean, he's, don't get me wrong, he's definitely made mistakes. But now I feel like I'm in the same scenario because Rogerio Micali has come in and uh, I was a big kind of fan of the work he did with uh, the junior Brazil side that won the Olympics. But at the same time, it's, it's really weird because, you know, the English club I support has had the same manager for 21 years 
and then kind of transitioning across to watching watching Brazilian football and watching Atletico, where it's actually really easy to get a bit weary about the managers. So uh, the last manager we hired, I quite liked, but he lasted six months. And I kind of think the same about Rogério as well. I think to myself, well, he's not going to be there this time next year, pretty much no matter what, because if he does even an average job, he'll get sacked. If he does a brilliant job, he'll probably go to China or something uh, like Kuka uh, did. So it's, it's, it's very difficult to invest in who the actual manager is at any one time. It, it's quite um, it's quite puzzling. And I think also a lot of Atletico fans will tell you that uh, Khalil, uh, the old owner um, under whom we won the Libertadores, won the Copa do Brasil, put in a couple of good title challenges and he's gone now. And uh, I think there's a feeling that the administration of the club um, is probably not what it was under Khalil. How true that is, I'm not sure, because I don't trust any of these guys as far as I could throw them, quite frankly. So it's very difficult for me to warm to anyone that owns or has anything to do with owning a Brazilian football club. But yeah, I think there's quite a bit of disquiet from the fans as well in terms of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of chairman and the board um, that are in place at the moment and that there's been a slight slipping of standards there. And Austin, did you share my prize this season? You know, I know you and I have, have spoken on several pods about Gallo, uh, but I find it very, very bizarre to find them 13th in the league. They, they are better than that. Um, you know, even taking their inconsistencies out of the way, they are better than that, surely. I think they are better than that, but I think it also kind of illustrates what is kind of this middle point of Brazilian football in that, yes, they're in 13th on 20 points, but if you look at the table, they're also four points out of sixth. And so you put together two good performances, which clubs do struggle to do at times in Brazil, but a run of form and then boom, the whole year kind of turns around. And that's how tight this table is really in Brazil. And it's been this way for a long time in that you maybe get two or three teams at the top that can stretch a lead. But beyond that, it just kind of all mushes together. And then whoever can put the run of form on at the right time at the end of the year ends up making the Libertadores because from fourth till 17th, it's only an 11 point gap. You know, Flamengo in fourth have 28 points. Avaí in 17th have 17 points. So it's one run of form either way from really seeing years turn around for clubs. And I think that's what makes it so difficult is it is all just so volatile. And one month from now, Atletico Mineiro could be having a really good year. It might not be likely, but string together, you know, five wins out of six and boom, you're right back at the top of the table. And that's what makes this league so tough to kind of try and predict is you never know when those runs of form are coming. And they generally don't make any sense when they happen because it's not like you can look at matches and predict, oh, that'll be an easy result because it really never goes that way, it feels like. No, and I hear you. And your, your own team there, Palmeiras, who, you know, are sitting in fifth now, didn't have what you would call a particularly good start of the season. I think that's a great illustration, actually, of what you're talking about, Austin, about you know, just a few results can make such a difference. I say Palmeiras were, were sort of down, and I think they were in uh, uh, Cuatro at, at one stage, but you know, they're up into, up into the Libertadores places, and they seem, to be, they seem to have gotten themselves together. Well, kind of. They had themselves together, uh, and then they went to Ecuador for the Libertadores, and it kind of all fell apart at a late goal there, and then Palmeiras kind of slipped into this funk at the start of July. 
where they lost to Barcelona, Giguaya kill, and then they went and played away to Corinthians and lost, or away the Cruzeiro rather, and lost, then hosted Corinthians and were really outclassed on the night. And things kind of spiraled out of control, and it was, oh no, it's not great. And then they kind of righted the ship against a very bad and defensively incapable Vitoria side, scratched out a draw miraculously against Flamengo. I think you and I would both agree based on the two performances. Oh, be- be- best game of best game of football I've watched in Brazil. It was it was it was it had everything. Although not for a Palmeiras fan. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a hard stopper. Palmeiras saved a penalty that pretty much sealed a point for them, which was huge. And then at the weekend, finally looked good for the first time in really a month in a resounding 2-0 win away to a sport receive side that I think deserves some plaudits for how well they've played this year under Vanderlei Luxembourgo, who is suddenly a good manager again. I don't know. Brazil doesn't make any sense. Uh, so we'll see with Palmeiras. It's a very big squad. Um, it feels like Kuka sends out a different 11 every single match, and I think that has hurt the consistency a little bit, but also in the fact that he doesn't necessarily have any real standout performers. Obviously, Yeri Mina in defense is, I think, for my money, the best center back in South America and consistently plays like it, but there are some question marks in attack. It's a very expensive squad, um, but that hasn't exactly made a very certain squad players will have a good performance they'll string together a couple of weeks where they look very good and then they'll string together two weeks where they look desperately bad and I think that has kind of been Palmatis's problem has been not necessarily team consistency but individual consistency uh big couple of matches coming up for them Cruzeiro in the Copa do Brasil which is a competition that Verdão kind of have circled now that the league looks like it's probably going to slip away and slip away to their arch rivals. Uh, and then the Libertadores return leg a couple weeks from now against Barcelona in what should be a big night in Sao Paulo. So individual consistency, I think, has been the biggest issue for Palmeiras. And you look at the table, and that's that's kind of been the issue for a lot of teams. Flamengo have a ton of talent. There's a lot of intrigue around their manager, Zé Ricardo. They're in fourth place. A good run from them could see them make a challenge. Gremio, I think, for my money, have been... The most impressive attacking side in this Brazilian down, they've scored the most goals. Luan is a player that we've talked about a lot that we really like. Lucas Barrios has played well for Gremio, but they've had a couple of stub your toe performances that when you have a side that's played as consistently as Corinthians had, has really cost Gremio. They lost at home to Avaí, a team that's in the relegation zone right now. They drew away to Sao Paulo in a match that they played much better than Sao Paulo, another team that's in the relegation zone that I'm sure we'll talk about coming up. And that's kind of cost them just that little bit. And then Santos, you know, there's been some inconsistencies in attack for them. They've defended quite well. They've only conceded 10 times this year. And that's what's kept these teams from really chasing Corinthians. You know, any other year, it feels like this would be a really good title race between a bunch of flawed teams going for it. And that's kind of what we had last year. But Corinthians have just been that much more consistent and that strong that they've not had any of those performances, which leave your head scratching. 30 matches unbeaten. They've yet to lose. It's it's really tough to see anybody catching Corinthians without Corinthians taking a big step back because I don't know that there's anybody that's consistent enough to make a real big challenge. I really thought that Palmeiras would challenge again this year. I didn't necessarily think they'd win it, but um, I kind of looked at the squad and I know they lost Gabriel Jesus and that's that's a real headline loss. And 
quite an obvious one. But, you know, they brought in Miguel Borja, who I mistakenly thought would be a really good signing. Me too. Uh, for Palmeiras. Me too. Not I, great. I, I, I thought he might just solve that problem by not being quite as good as Gabriel Jesus, but just being good enough, you know, a bit like Joe at, at Corinthians. And I looked at the rest of the squad and I thought, yeah, the, the rest of the squad from last year is is pretty much still there. They got Kuka back, you know, quite early. Um, and I, I really expected to see Palmeiras challenge. I, I thought it would be between Palmeiras and Flamengo this year. But like you say, they just haven't been able to to bring that kind of consistency, the consistency of selection. And I think also, you know, it, you can't overstate the fact that Corinthians went out of the Copa del Brasil quite early, that they weren't in the Libertadores. I think also not a lot of their players will generate that much interest um, in the transfer window. Um, so I, I don't think there's much chance of Corinthians team being picked apart. Joe will stay put because he'll want to make a late run for the World Cup squad. Jadson's already been and gone and come back, so you can't see someone like him going again. So I, I think they'll be quite settled, um, and, that, and that just seems to be the big problem with the other teams as well. Santos, you know, have already changed manager, and they've got Levia Kulpi in, and I'm not sure that looks like a great fit. So, to be honest, I just expect that kind of, certainly that top five, um, I think will stay pretty much the same. There might be a little bit of jockeying of position, but um, I think maybe the sixth spot will become very interesting, um, the final kind of uh, Libertadores spot. But I think that top five, I think Corinthians will stay top. Um, Then between second and fifth, you might see a little bit of interchange, but I think those teams will finish in those positions. Tim, I think you hit on on a good point there. You know, the top five, yeah, you can you can see staying the same, but that little group below, you know, Sport Recife, uh, Botafogo, Cruzeiro, um, you know, even Fluminese there, and they haven't been great. But again, a, a run of games can can change everything. I think you're looking at maybe four to five teams looking for that that sixth spot. Um, certainly, what's above them, you know, we've got Corinthians, Gremio, Santos, Flamengo, Palmeiras. You would imagine those five at this stage at the halfway point not really moving that far but it will be a i think it's, i think that's going to be a key battle there against that you know the final of the of the g6 places yeah absolutely and, and vasco as well you know vasco are, are looking pretty good all of a sudden they found a couple of teenagers seemingly from nowhere you know which which you quite often see actually in the brazil as well you know a team just a, a bit like palmeiras with gabriel jesus you know they just there wasn't an awful lot of buzzed about him when he was kind of 16, 17, but he burst onto the scene. And, and uh, you know, Vasco seemed to have, have found a couple of players from their academy that nobody knows much about, and they're playing pretty fearlessly. You know, Paulinho, born in um, July 2000, which is unbelievably depressing, um, even more depressing than the fact that he scored twice against Atletico the other night. But, you know, this kid's just turned 17 um, and he's coming into the team and, and scoring some pretty good goals. And, and you know, Vasco are a team who, who I don't think anyone really expected them to be in this part of the table. Um, That's why and, I'm so quiet on it, Tim, because yeah. I'm not, I don't want to scud them. I've built them up before <laughs> in my years here and I just I, I purposely left them out of that equation for that reason. Yeah, exactly. And, that you know, they've been kind of... they've become something of a yo-yo club over the last kind of three, four years or so. And, and now all of a sudden they're, they're looking quietly impressive. And I, I think Vasco as well are trying to keep that a bit quiet as well. I think they're trying to, you know, um, perhaps 
sneak under the radar a little bit. They could be a very interesting team, a bit like Botafogo last year, who kind of snuck that last that last spot, having been pretty much mid-table all season. They made a bit of a late run um, at it, and and you know if if somehow it ends up between being between Botafogo and Vasco for that last spot, you know with should we say regional pride at stake, that could be really really interesting. I think that will probably be a lot more interesting than what's than what's happening in first place. Um, a couple of things. Vasco have been very interesting this year because they're in eighth place, but they also have a goal differential of minus five. When they lose, yeah. they lose heavily. And when they win, they, they, they just kind of win. So it is interesting. I like the both the focal comparison. Um, still haunting us in the Libertadores by that spot that they just <laughs> sneaked at the end of last year. One final thing about the top five. I agree with you all that that will probably be what it is. But if Palmeiras, Santos, or Gremio make a run in the Copa Libertadores, I think you'll see mm. their position in the table slip down because all of the eggs will go into that basket, especially with Corinthians mm. playing the way that they will. And that could cost them a couple of spots in the table. So even though they are one of the five most talented teams, talented in quotation marks, obviously, a Libertadores run could shift that because you'll see reserve sides getting fielded and points being dropped in places that they probably wouldn't be otherwise, which is just always something to keep in mind in Brazil that there is a hierarchy, if you will, of the competitions. And if they don't think they can win the league, but they're still in the Libertadores or even the Copa do Brasil or even both, I think you could see league performance suffer because of that. Yeah, and that's that's a really interesting dynamic this season, actually, because it's the first time the Libertadores runs till the end of the season where, you know, you used to get that thing where teams like when Atletico won it, they completely wrote off um, the first half of the season because they were chasing that. Um, whereas this time now it's a bit more stretched out. Um, you don't quite get that kind of the first half of the year, you're getting teams throwing the league for the Libertadores. And in the second half of the year, you're getting teams throwing the league for the Copa do Brasil. And it'll be interesting to see which teams really adjust to that because, you know, it, it's pretty much a deliberate strategy or it has been um, in the past at times to kind of almost, write, you know, compartmentalise your season. But now it's all kind of, it's all a constant thread running through. It'll be very interesting to see which teams handle that. No, indeed. Um, listen, I, I, I want to move into uh, the quattro, the, the bottom four, because I, I think there's there, there's a huge story in there. You know, obviously we're starting the, this podcast basically halfway through the season. And, you know, if we look at the bottom four, we have Hawaii, uh, Sao Paulo, uh, Vitoria and Atletico Goianese. Sao Paulo being in this much trouble. Um, you know, obviously Rogerio Senni uh, was, was done away with. And I think he got maybe... His status got a little longer than would be normal in, in Brazil for, for, for a team in that kind of trouble, Tim. It, it beggars belief that, that Sao Paulo could actually be facing a drop here. Um, you know, such yeah. a big club. You know, we saw them last night with 52,000 uh, spectators in the ground, a voracious crowd. But they're, they're on the pitch, they're, they're no great shakes. And it, it could actually come to pass that they go down. It could, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, as, as much as we were saying, like a, a good run can get you very, very far in terms of qualifying for the Libertadores. Pretty much every year there's a big team that either gets relegated or really, really flirts with it, like Internacional last year. And again, Inter didn't seem to be in massive danger until the last 10 games or so. Um, but Sao Paulo at the moment, I mean, you know, it seems like, you know, Rogerio Senni was always going to manage Sao Paulo, but 
it kind of felt like um, it was an itch they tried to scratch far too early um, and that really they should have left it a couple of years, perhaps had him involved in some other coaching capacity and done a proper succession plan uh, like any Brazilian club would ever do that. And it just feels like, you know, Sao Paulo were like, right, Rogério Senni's retired. Uh, he's going to be the coach one day. Everyone knows this. Um, let's just do it now when he clearly wasn't prepared for it. It'd be a bit like, um, you know, to draw a Premier League comparison, it'd be a bit like Chelsea just going, right, let's make John Terry manager now. Um, now his contract's up, you know. It, it just clearly wasn't ready for it. And then, that you know, they kind of exacerbated the situation by, had it been any other manager, he'd have been sat much, much more quickly. And I think Sao Paulo got themselves in a little bit of a bind there. What I would say is, though, I think we saw Sao Paulo in almost exactly this situation about four years ago. I think it was 2013. We're at the halfway point. They might have even been bottom. They just had enough quality to basically pull together a bit of a run of seven or eight games. And I think they finished mid-table. And I think that's what they'd be looking to do here. But like you say, there's no signs of that yet on the pitch. And again, that looks like a really unbalanced squad. Doesn't look terribly motivated at the moment and they're in big trouble um, at the moment they really are um, and we you know we see it time and time again in Brazil nobody is too big to go down and but what you would say is at the moment you know they're what well, they're on 16 points one win could put them up to 14th and you know like Austin was saying earlier the table well, I watched them against Gremio last night and I felt they were fortunate coming away with the point. I think the, the crowd had it. And, and if they can get that type of crowd in week in, week mm. out, I know we, we spoke a little bit pre-pod about it. it, it could help them massively because the crowd did yeah. have an influence last night. But on the pitch, I watched them here uh, in, in the Copa de Brazil uh, earlier on in the season against LBC. And you know we, we, we scored against them after a minute and they looked wobbly. Now, fair enough, they came back and they won the tie but you know, even a Serie B side can rattle them and get at them, and I think that that long term and, and if I look the, the rest of the season, it, that's the hump that they need to get over. Yeah, and I, I think there have been signs really of, um, of of this in Sao Paulo for a couple of years. You know, when they got that last Libertadores spot, um, not last in 2015. You know, that was a travesty, an absolute travesty. They were terrible, and yet they somehow kind of snuck into fourth. And even then, I, I thought they looked a, a pretty uninspiring um, kind of outfit. And they, they, there does just seem to have been like this real sense of decline around Sao Paulo. I think for quite a while now, I think this has been, like I said, like four years ago, they were in a, a very similar situation to this. I don't really like going into intangibles when talking about football, but there just seems to be really, really low morale around the whole club that's been there for quite a while. And I'm not quite sure why it is but yeah I, I think they're in some trouble I, I'm not certain they'll go down but I'm not certain that they'll they'll come out of this conversation um, they, there's certainly very very few signs on the pitch and like you say that their confidence seems so low and they just seem to be in that kind of scenario where if they concede um, the heads drop and that's a, that's a really that, that's really difficult to turn around and I'm not sure you know that they've got more quality than their position suggests, but not that much more. I don't think they're not. You know, this is not a really good squad that is in a really, really false position. I, I don't think there's an awful lot there, um, to be honest. And it just seems like the whole feel of the place. It just looks, 
it looks a bit desperate, to be honest. I think a good comparison for what we've seen from Sao Paulo this year is what we saw from Internacional last year. Another one of the big clubs, you know, never been relegated. Sao Paulo wears that, obviously, as a badge of honor. Um, and we just kept saying to ourselves, they just have too much talent. They can't go down. They have too much talent. And in the end, they didn't have too much talent and they did go down. And I think that Inter side was maybe not significantly more talented than this Sao Paulo side, mm. but definitely had more individual talent than Sao Paulo has. There's mm. some nice pieces for sure. Um, Rodrigo Caio as a defender is a good player. Lucas Prato has shown that he can be very good at this level. Um, Christian Cueva has his moments in the midfield. But what is most concerning, I think, for me with Sao Paulo is... Their strategy to get out of this has seemed to be, well, we'll sell off some of the players who are here and then we'll go and buy new players to come in and try and fix this. I think they lead Brazil in players brought in this year. I believe it's around 20 players they've brought into the squad. Um, club legend Hernanis is coming back. They bought Jonathan Gomez, the Argentine from Colombia. Uh, Arboleda, the Ecuadorian center back they bought. And it seems like their strategy is just to try and throw cash at this problem and see if they can buy enough players to get them out of it. And it might get them out of it, but it also might not. And they're in a really precarious situation because a bad run of form and this hole could be a bit too big to dig themselves out of. They're the two teams below them, I think we can pretty much write off as relegated already. Um, Atlético Goya and the NC were relegated from the start of this year. They signed Big Walter, and that's pretty much the only relevant thing they've done this year, unfortunately. Um, so it's pretty easy to see them back to Sede Bay. Vitoria probably should have been relegated last year if it wasn't for a great performance from Marinho, who then got his checks and went to China. Uh, and Vitoria are still kind of looking to replace him. So I'm pretty sure they're going to get relegated. Avaí, the team right above Sao Paulo, are not a great team by any stretch, but they have a bit they recognize the position they're in, I think, a bit more than Sao Paulo does. And so they fight and scratch and claw for every single point. And they're going to be right on the edge probably up until the end. But that could be enough to get them through. Atletico Paranaense are another team that probably shouldn't be near relegation. But they're not very good. We've seen that in the Libertadores. We're seeing that here in the Brasile Down. I think they're going to be down and in around it. Chiba are another team that doesn't really have anything that inspires you with confidence that they'll stay up. You love them, Austin. You love them. Don't know how they're <laughs> still in this top division. I did some of the research on it at the start of the year. They finished mid-table with a goal difference, with like 40 goals scored and 40 goals conceded for like four straight years in a country where nobody is consistent. They've been consistently themselves for four years now. They'll probably do that again. And then I look at a couple of teams in the middle of the table right now who are two or three results away from being right back in a round relegation in Ponchi Preta, who have won two in a row after being in the relegation zone. Luca is a very good striker for them, and he might be enough to score enough goals to keep them out of it, but there's not a ton that you like in that team. And then Chapecoense are a team that have put together a couple of positive results to give themselves a little bit of breathing room now, but I think they'll be down and in that conversation. So there's a lot of names for really two spots, and so, like we've said, a bad run of form for Sao Paulo, and they might be down. You know, a good run of form, and they might just stay up. But I think Tim's right in pointing out that regardless of what happens this year, it does feel like there are bigger issues within the club. It hasn't been well managed. They've been notoriously quick at sacking managers, even for Brazilian standards. And their solution seems to be, well, we'll buy a bunch of players, and we'll stay up, and we'll do it again this year. 
Making the Libertadores was an absolute farce. They got to the semifinals, which I think gave them a little bit more confidence than they deserved, considering how poor that team really was. Jonathan Coletti really carried them last year. He's not there anymore. So it's interesting. Uh, it's a big story. Anytime any of the big clubs are in and around relegation, it is, especially more so when when it's one of the teams that has never never gone down and are quite happy to tell you that they've never gone down. It's going to be a big fight for them. They're going to scratch and claw, no doubt. It's, it's quite interesting. You know, like I, I spent, obviously, the day with them you know, just before the season started uh, when I got to interview Michael Bale. And, it, you know, that squad sort of, the, the spirit and harmony of that squad was was something I sort of took away and, and thought, you know, like these are a really, really tight bunch. And I think, I think that's the biggest surprise for me in all of this, because, you know, g- given the fact that having that, that sort of little window, albeit just an afternoon, I, I, I really did think that, that they would do well. And I thought that with Rogerio Senni and his status at that club and so on, uh, you know, would, would have been a, a, a big factor in all of that. But it just seems to have all fallen away. They've sold most of it is the issue. You look at the squad. Uh, last night, Sport TV in the Sao Paulo Gremio match showed a graphic that Sao Paulo's side to start the state league in February, on February 2nd, and the 11 that they played against Gremio, there were two similarities. There were only two players in a five-month span that are still in the starting 11. That's ridiculously inconsistent. Michael is gone. Uh, a couple of young players, Luis Araujo, is gone. Um, Thiago Mangis is gone. And so there's just a lot of turnover and turmoil at the club in a moment where they really don't need that. Uh, Rodrigo Kyle is, uh, you know, still attracting interest from clubs in Europe. And I, I don't think it's by any means certain that he'll still be um, at Sao Paulo in a month's time. Perhaps the only thing that's kind of, well, the only thing certainly that's kept him there the last couple of years is his injury history. He may also consider that he's kind of on the cusp of the Brazil squad. But, you know, if they lost him, um, who really at the moment is one of the only players that, that can be said to be performing at any kind of consistent level, that could be bad news for them as well. Well, listen, moving along into a little bit of transfer news. And there was there was a strange one that took place this week, Austin, for my money. And Camilo from um, Botafogo made the move to International in Serie B, um, you know, leaving basically, um, you know, South American Champions League in the form of Copa Libertadores to go and play in the second tier. And I, I find that one sort of kind of weird. And given the fact that Internacional, you know, were, were at the beginning of the league and Serie B, were wiping the floor with everyone, they now find themselves sort of just struggling to stay in the promotion uh, hunt. It's, it's, it's a strange transfer for me. What, what did you make of that one, Austin? Yeah, Camilo was a player who stood out um, on the Libertadores podcast. I remember Simon Edwards talking about how when he watched both Fogel play, Camilo was the player that kind of kept him coming back to Fogel because of how impressive he was. Both Fogel have had a couple of these transfers, actually. Sasa, another player who's who's played well, uh, was kind of pushed out the door to go to Cruzeiro. I don't, I don't want to say there's issues within Botafogo, but I think they did have some big personalities and that maybe didn't mesh with Jair Ventura, their manager, who deserves a lot of credit for what he's done with that side um, coming up from Sede Bay and then finding a consistent part where they're not at a risk of being a yo-yo club. So it is really interesting. I think it also illustrates the danger that big clubs have when they go down, referring to Internacional. Uh, we all expected them to bounce back up quickly they might still come back up, but they're having a time and a half in the second division 
with a squad that on paper looks like a mid-table first division side. And it's a tough place to go. It's a tough league to come into. And Internacional are really struggling. Uh, rumors now that uh, Guto Ferreira might be on his way out. He was a manager they brought in from Bahia. And Dunga could actually potentially be in at Internacional, which I think would be great entertainment. And I'd, I'd be all here for it. But it just illustrates that even when you do go down and just assume you're going to come back up, that's not always the case. They're throwing a lot of money at a lot of players, uh, Camilo being one of them. Leandro Damião is back in the fold at Internacional. We'll see if he's better in the second division than he was in the first. Uh, he wasn't particularly good. It's very, very interesting to watch this Internacional side. I still think they'll come back up, but it's been a lot more difficult than I expected that it would be for them. No, and uh, Tim, I'll bring you in on this one. You know, Austin and I had, had had a discussion, I think, on, on one of the, uh, the, the the other pods on South America along the lines of we just expected Inter to have so much, just to be a different class in Serie B. And they certainly mm. looked at for the opening games, maybe the you know first eight, eight to ten games. And now they, they, they don't. They look like just run-of-the-mill team down there. And I, I'm just wondering, have they been dragged down a level um, you know, with playing at the lower level of football? Because... It doesn't make any sense. And also the Camelo thing. I, I thought he was destined for Europe. He's he's the yeah. one as he's the one player in Botafogo that really stood out. I, I thought he was done better than that. Yeah, that that is that is a really really weird transfer. Um, I think yeah, the Leandro Damiao move is less weird. Um, even though I, I really really have a passionate dislike for Leandro Damiao, um, so I'm not disappointed to see him leave Syria. Um, but yeah, and, and I think also the thing for a club like when a club like Inter goes down to Serie B, you know, all of a sudden they become a massive scalp um, for everybody and everybody raises their game. And, you know, and once that reality hits their players as well, who, you know, are they as up for it? And, do, you know, do they really want to kind of stick around kicking, you know, being kicked in Serie B? And it, it just seems like, whereas, you know, you look at the top of Serie B and, you know, America are top because they're an incredibly experienced kind of yo-yo side. So they know this level very well. They're probably going to go back up again and then they'll probably get relegated horribly from Serie A uh, like they usually do. So, you know, those kind of teams and uh, Villanova, those teams that kind of know this level a bit better, um, whether I tend to think that maybe... Sometimes you can go through stages when you when you're a big club that gets relegated. And again, to draw a kind of English comparison, I think Newcastle United went through this last year in the championship. So you start off and you start quite well and, you know, life's quite easy. But then the reality kind of kicks in and can grind you down a bit. But what I think into what should happen to Inter really is that they should start to accumulate that knowledge of the level um, and really start to adjust to what they're actually up against. And you'd, you'd think that with the kind of quality they have available, that they that, that once that kind of knowledge starts to kick in, they'll they'll kind of get into gear again. And you know, uh, Leandro Damiao, it's 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 quite a funny, um, amusing signing. But you know, although he hasn't done it in the top division for quite a long time, um, this might be quite a good move for him because you know he has at one point in his career shown that he knows how to score in Brazil and you know he's someone with a little bit more experience not quite grizzled veteran status yet but kind of getting there kind of going back to a club where he feels comfortable and I I, I think that might end up being actually quite a canny signing even if it's like even if it looks expensive and sentimental 
Um, I actually think that might prove to be quite quite a decent signing for them and just someone with enough nous to kind of get them over the line because they're only you know they're only six points off the top they're only, they're only a couple of points off of you know second and third place so again there's there's no real alarm there um, I don't think but they'll they'll be desperate to get out because if you stay down for one year you know then there's every chance that you've become assimilated to that level and it only gets harder to get back out again. And they'll be looking at clubs like Vasco and like America who kind of have gone down but have come straight back up. And, you know, now Vasco look like they're kind of getting back on a bit more of an even kilter. Um, but it, it's it's a really interesting one. Those are a couple of really interesting signings, actually. It would be fascinating to see how they do because those those would be, you know, those would be signings you could see the team in six in Serie A making rather than the team in six in Serie B. So... Um, it'll be interesting to see how both those players adjust to that level. Um, but yeah, it's 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 one of those kind of fascinating stories. And we say they well, they sh- the quality should bring them up. But you know, as Austin said, we were saying that about them last year in terms of going down that they should, uh, you know, they should have too much quality for that. So I, I think that's going to be really really fascinating to see how that develops over the, over the next few months. And there's another side to it, Austin, as well. And I think it's more of a Serie B thing. You don't you don't find it so much in Serie A, in as much as you know there's bus parkers down down in the Serie B. You know, certainly I look at ABC, my team in Serie B went down to Inter um, a couple of months. I just put a you put two banks of four and just sat back on them. Again, that's not something the Serie A side in Brazil is necessarily facing week in week out. And and you know whenever when they were at the top of their game, I think these these sides were just in containment mode. And again, that's that's a new world for them. Yeah, it's it's like Tim said, it is it's different. And I think it's a good point to make that you know Inter are a bit of a scalp for all of these Serie B sides. You know that was that AB that ABC result that they got away at the Beta Hero against Inter to play as well as they did against them, you know, that's a huge deal for a club like ABC. And so it's a huge deal for every club that they're running into in this second division. And they do have a lot of the talent, but I think the the biggest point here is they're going to be so desperate to come back up because in Brazil, there's kind of this understood agreement that if you go down with a club, the right and the honorable thing to do is to spend a year there to try to get them back up. You know, players will take responsibility for it. But if Inter fail to go up this year, I think you will see a mass exodus of talent. Nico Lopez is a player who should not be playing in the second division in Brazil. Uh, Felipe Gutierrez, the Chilean international, another player who should not be playing in the second division in Brazil. De Alessandro is a bit of a different player because he is a club legend, but I don't think he wants to be playing in the second division of Brazil right now. Victor Cuesta, their center back. You just look up and down the squad list. If Inter were somehow to not come back up, I think you'd see a completely different squad come next year. And that is the pressure that they do face more so than probably any other team in that division where they know the next five or six years for their club could really depend on what they do in the next four months as far as coming back up. Another club, just just sticking in, in Serie B, and, and, and another ridiculous one for you, Tim. Figuring as he find themselves down yeah. in, in in 18th in the table, having come down from Serie A last season. That's I think that, that that's that's the big one for me. You know, obviously the the, the drop off of, of international, but you expect them to come back. Figuring as are in, in terrible problems to have them come down. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know they were they were really only just relegated um, from Serie A last season and. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, they will be looking very, very nervously at the situation with um, with uh, Portuguesa um, at the moment, who, who you know, fell into that trapdoor and went into complete free fall and just fell down the divisions. And, you know, that, that's happened. Uh, that's happened to, to a few teams, really, that once the kind of financial reality bites of a couple of relegations in quick succession that you know that can ruin clubs and it has ruined clubs um, and it's ruining someone like Portuguesa at the moment so yeah for Figueirense to be down there I mean it's it, you know again not a super talented squad but not one that you would have in relegation trouble um, in Serie B and when you you know I, I know they're not a huge name in Brazil so much but when you look at um some of the players they have produced, like uh, Roberto Firmino and Felipe Luis, you know, they're, they're not without some pedigree. And, um, I, you know, again, I like we say, it's so volatile in Brazil, it's so difficult to predict, but I really don't think anyone would have had Figueirense as someone, fight, you know, potentially getting relegated to, to Serie C. I think whether there'd have been a candidate to come straight back up, I'm, I'm not sure, but you'd have had them maybe in that conversation, in that kind of, top five or six clubs so to see them struggle so badly is um i mean, I mean it's baffling really i think one comparison no. as well for them is join Vili, a side that we saw in the yeah. first division relegated fairly easily they fell straight through sede bay last year they're now in sede say they're right in the middle and things get a little funky when you get down to the third division as far as format yeah. and your whole year can come down to a couple it of head-to-head -head ties. <laughs> and then the fourth division of Brazil is just a whole different world. So it's a it's a thing that medium-sized and smaller clubs in Brazil, they do have to be aware of because once you start falling, there's a chance you might not stop falling until you've flattened yourself completely out of the first four divisions, which we saw with Portuguesa. No, that's, that's a fair point. Maybe maybe for our listeners who maybe aren't a fae, the two leagues are basically run as every other league. But once you hit down into Serie C, um, you, you you go into a two-league format, north and south, and it's basically to keep down travel costs and so on. So you have a northern league and a southern league in the top four playoff, uh, uh, you know, uh, against each other of uh, eight teams and until if you win your first match, you're, you're promoted, but it continues on until whoever wins the league. But once you get into that, uh, scenario, it would be very, very difficult to get out of. My own team, ABC, came up through it last season, and it was a horrible experience, a totally horrible experience watching it. And by the looks of it, we're in 19th at the minute, and not looking particularly good. After a, after a very, very promising start to the season, it may be said, uh, it's not looking good. But let's move on a little bit as well, and, and, and I feel that we, we should really touch on the problems. You know, Tim mentions financing and so on, and, and Finance in the country of Brazil at the moment politically is causing a huge problem and knock-on effect into the football world. And as much as you know, public services, the likes of police and so on, are three months behind in their salaries in the state of Rio de Janeiro. This is a this is a problem. Post World Cup, post Olympics, that things didn't go particularly uh, according to plan for the city and so on. And and it certainly wasn't the ray of light that they were hoping to shine on the city. And at the moment, we have had deaths of fans with confrontations against the very, very sparsely populated uh, police population on the streets, but the police are reaching for their guns. As I say, we have uh, had fans kicked to death in Curitiba. We have problems in Sao Paulo. Um, I think the, the solution they've come up with at the moment is to, to ban all away fans. And already a league where you know, attendances can be sparse, Tim, uh, it, mm. it's, it's a really bad state of affairs we're looking at down here. 
It is, yeah. And I, you know, I watched most notably the Vasco Flamengo uh, game a couple of weeks ago, and I watched that, and and you know what unfolded after that was yeah, five shot, one dead. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not surprising. And and in fact, as soon as you saw the crowd trouble, you know, my instant thought was, what's the death toll going to be? And, um, you know, and, and that's that's really, really tragic that people die far too often um, at these games. But the solution to ban away fans, uh, you know, on the face of it makes some sense. But really, that's an admission that the police can't deal with you know, a, a, a fairly small pocket of away fans. It's not big in Brazil, like to, you know, the country's too big. Um, so obviously for local derbies that changes, but that's basically an admission that the police can't handle. Basically, this is too big for them to handle. And as you say, what, what happens then when these flashpoints occur um, is the police just, you know, they literally go trigger happy. It's It's like... Um, kind of the final solution is the first solution, you know, the batons come out, the guns come out and everything. And, you know, even at the Vasco Flamengo game, like straight away, as soon as there was a bit of a surge, you know, they were firing into the crowd to try and disperse them, which, you know, as, as you know, someone who what, who's kind of gotten used to going to English stadiums and everything that's happened here since the Hillsborough disaster, um, it really feels like um, Brazilian football I mean, not to get too morbid about it, but sometimes I, I think to myself, there's going to be another stadium disaster in Brazil, like, you know, like a, a, a crush or something like that, where lots and lots of people are going to die. The amount of games you watch where fences fall, you know, where fans just fall onto the pitch um, and things like that, because a lot of the stadiums are quite old and um, nobody really looks after them because the clubs don't really run them and maintain them. So things fall through the gaps. And, and games I've been to in Brazil where basically the turns, well, there aren't really turnstiles. There's just a guy standing there, um, you know, in front of the metal barricade. And if you wanted to <laughs> run into a game in Brazil and not pay, it, it's incredibly easy um, to do because, you know, it's, it's all a bit, it's all a bit ramshackle. And yeah, it, it just, it, like you say, I think it just reflects a wider kind of crisis with, with the police and kind of security in general that they just can't manage um, things. And I think one of, uh, one of the biggest problems, and I think one of the reasons why, you know, this, this kind of thing is so prevalent, particularly at football, is because the, you know, the police are, are so overworked and perhaps not trained brilliantly. So you, you kind of, you get, this situ- you get these situations where basically nobody gets punished effectively um, and you see these even these ridiculous situations happen like a couple of years ago some Corinthians fans broke into the training ground with crowbars and um, none of them had their, had their memberships taken away and the Corinthians president said something like oh you know it was just like a, a show of passion or whatever and there, there just doesn't really seem to be any way of kind of it, so it's kind of lawless you know so nobody gets punished for these things so it kind of encourages people to do them and the police can't handle these flashpoints when when they kick off so it's incredibly sad really and the the amount of times that you read oh someone died and and it's you know quite often it's not in the stadium either every time atletico play cruzeiro i always read about 4 hours before the game oh someone was shot in you know the middle of belarizante or there was a big flashpoint and a big fight and someone's been kicked to death and you see some horrible footage and and it's just it's it's all far too common but 
um, there doesn't seem to be an immediate solution to it. So, I mean, banning away fans on the face of it is is probably the best one there is, but it's still not really ideal. No, for from my money, Tim, I think. You know, for the likes of classicals, you know, would would banning away fans have made any difference to the Vasco Flamengo game? No, because the, the the majority of the real tragic stuff happened outside the stadium, yeah. and you get fan groups and and you know barrios who 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 will just go to confront. They don't need to go to the game to uh, need to be inside the stadium. And and my own, you know, from, from living here, the amount of time I have, I just get a feeling that you know, as long as they don't have to look at that crowd violence you know during the game in the stadium yeah. it can be swept under the carpet you, you know much easier whenever it's outside the stadium uh than it can be when it's yeah. in they have to you know it has to go on the news it has to be to the forefront whereas if you if you isolate it to the streets we can easily just paper cracks of that and again that that's terribly wrong but it seems like you are just papering cracks yeah, and, and because, like I said, no one really takes responsibility for the running of the stadiums and you get this really ridiculous scenario where um, sometimes there's private security firms policing them sometimes. And, you know, because, like, you know, the clubs don't really have responsibility for the ground, you get, like, things fall through the cracks and people point at each other and the clubs will say, oh, we hired a private security firm and they didn't do their job or basically nobody takes really takes any responsibility for it. No, indeed. And Austin, for you, you were at quite a few games down here in, in the last month or so. You, I, I take it you saw absolutely no problems or w- was it evident to you that, you know, Br- Brazil tends to be attending football matches down here can be quite an edgy. I think that's the best way to describe it. It can be, can, it can be quite edgy during the game. Did you experience any of that when you were down there? I really didn't. Um, I went to eight matches. Obviously, I didn't go to any Clásicos. So um, in Sao Paulo, the solution for Clásicos has been away fans have been banned for about a year and a half now. Um, there was a confrontation between Palmeiras and Corinthians fans in transit to a derby at the start of 2016, I believe. And since then, um, away fans have been completely banned at Clásicos, which, as we've said, you know, it's not a, a be-all, end-all solution. There is a bit of an admission of uh, that the police are kind of saying we can't control these situations. But I think it also makes it a bit easier for your everyday Brazilians to feel a bit safer going to matches. Um, because while this violence is present, and there's there's no doubt about that, the fact of the matter is, you know, your everyday football fan, even in Brazil, is not inclined really to violence. It's it's the torcidas, it's it's the organized fans that have really been the issues. There's protests and there's, you know, uh, discord between regular fans when performances are poor. But those normally don't end in violence until the ultras get involved. Um, so that is what is most difficult for me is that you know, seeing an everyday Brazilian family who just wants to go to a football match and support their club, having to deal with these questions of of safety and security that they shouldn't be forced to deal with at a match. As far as my experiences are concerned, um, I went to a match between Gremio and Corinthians where there were 55,000 people at the Arena do Gremio. I didn't encounter any sort of issues, um, but I did see how it is. it's easy for these issues to come up. Basically, in my entire time in the stadium, uh, besides handing my ticket to someone to get in, I didn't see any sort of security, any sort of ushers, any sort of stewards, any sort of stadium personnel it was really left to the fans themselves to kind of keep order. 
Um, and uh, there was no sort of issues and I was never unsafe at any moment, but you see how things can escalate out of control when whoever's in charge of security kind of puts their hands up and says, this is a crowd too big. We don't really have the resources to control it, especially at a stadium like that, where an average crowd is usually 20,000. And then all of a sudden they're dealing with 55,000 in a situation where they don't usually get that. And I think that can definitely cause difficulties. It's a, it's a tangled web of questions with, with no real solution. And I think that's the most concerning part about it all is you can hand out as many stadium bans as you want. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's hard to find solutions, especially in an area like Rio, where there are so many problems where, yes, they were able to put on the Olympics and they were able to host the World Cup for the most part without any issues. But it's left them so strapped that in the aftermath, when all of the eyes have gone away from the world, that they're really struggling with what to do. You know, paychecks behind the police, overworking of the police and, you know, under training, perhaps, of the police where it's it's not so much that the individual officers them they, they panic in any sort of situation it's it's really difficult and i think that's what makes this question so tough to tackle for brazil and it's going to be very difficult for the country to kind of try to deal with that and figure out what they're going to do because the solution isn't just you know to hand out all these bans and hope the problem goes away because it's not going to no, and I think just just in closing on this, I, th- I think that the thing that sticks out for me, and it was a report I actually saw over the weekend past, and there was more ambulances w- in attendance than there was police on the street. There was more paramedics at that incident uh, in in the Vasco Flamengo game than there was police in the streets, and that that's quite alarming when you when you've got that level of disorder going on. But listen, in, in closing this pod, because we're up close to our time here, it's just it's just uh, a little look at the, at the Neymar transfer situation. And I find this, and, and I know both of you are big into your, you know, reading of Brazil, all things Brazilians. And this has been so quiet in Brazil around Neymar, who, you know, who every, whose every breath is reported here uh, in one way or the other. And there has been just so little reporting on it. There's been so little comment on it. And I'm just curious from your your points of view as well. This is a, this is re- strangely not Brazilian in any way, Tim. They seem to be so quiet mm. about it. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I hadn't quite realised that. You know, I I read the kind of Brazilian press, but um, yeah, now, now you mention it, I haven't read that much to do with it. I I happened to be in Brazil um, when he left Santos, so like his last ever match for Santos, and it was like the like the news channels became like you know Sky Sports News. It was just it was just Neymar on repeat pretty much for an entire day. Um, and, you know, I, I always say to people who ask me about how like Neymar is covered in Brazil, it's like, you know, you hear that stat about how in London you're never more than 50 yards away from a rat at any one time. Well, in Brazil, you're never more than 50 yards away from either a billboard or an advertisement or something to do with Neymar. Um, Hence my love. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah. And so to hear that that's not really being picked up in Brazil is is really, really interesting. I think this is a really, really interesting story because it, it seems like there's legs on it. Um, I think it would have been shot down by now if there wasn't. And I can readily believe that Neymar um, fancies going somewhere and not standing in the shadow of Lionel Messi anymore, where his mate Danny Alves is, um, and, you know, really, you know, picking up a project there. But, but largely, I think we all know that Neymar's a guy who you know, for better or worse, has a bit of an ego. 
Um, it, I, I always say he reminds me a lot of Thierry Henry, um, both in terms of his quality and, and the way he carries himself. I think he's one of those people that, that needs to be, you know, he needs to be the man. He needs to be the star. He needs to feel loved. Um, and so I think that he's probably quite attracted of, of the idea of going to PSG. He's won the Champions League with Barca. He's won the Liga. He, he's pretty much done everything there, really. He's proved himself. And so, yeah, I, I could, I could, I think that he quite wants this. Um, and it would be fascinating to see if it comes off because if Barca lose a player they don't want to lose in a transfer like this, it, it's uh, particularly to someone like PSG who. I know they've got a lot of money, obviously, but to lose him to a Ligue 1 club would be really, really fascinating. And I'm, I'm not sure that this transfer will go through. Um, I'm not sure, you know, but then again, if the release clause is met, who knows? But um, I think it's fascinating, but I, c- I couldn't give you a reason why um, why there's been this apparent lack of interest in it in Brazil. That that surprises me. I can't think of a good reason why why that might be the case. Maybe because the Brazilian national side under Cheech has become more of a team rather than um, just 10 guys and Neymar. But I, I don't get the sense that that's kind of shrunk his, his, you know, his stardom um, at all over there. So I'm, I'm very surprised to hear that. I'd be very curious to hear why, why you guys think that is. Well, for me, it's the reason that I actually brought this into the podcast, him, because you know you, you rightly state that you were you were here 2014 whenever when the transfer went through, and like six months before that, we knew the transfer was happening, and it was constant. And also, you know, for weekend television here on Global, you know, there'll be an interview with him, there'll be something about him, his childhood or something. And it is almost like just somebody has turned a tap off here. And for, for the source that they loved, you know, it's a, it's a font they love to drink from and they're not indulging it in any way. Austin, yourself, and any, any thoughts on it? I think the only thing that comes to mind for me really is that it's been such a hard story to peg anything certain on that it's, it's hard to go one way or the other. Obviously, that hasn't stopped press in the past. But it has been, you know, I still think Neymar himself probably doesn't know what he's going to do. And I think that's why you don't see as much of the sensationalist coverage because it's hard to know what exactly is going to happen. Will he stay? Will he go? There's drama in that for sure. But it's been so hard to peg anything certain either way that I think I, that's the only thing that comes to mind for me as a, as a potential reason for it. Tim, you, you know, I, I see a, a lot, actually. It's, it's more sort of uh, speculation than I think solid. But it seems to be that the, the, the father, uh, who's who's also at Neymar's age and Neymar Sr., mm-hmm. uh, seems to be the driving force if this were to go through. And again, you know, he was the driving force at Barcelona. It got the whole family into a lot of problems, uh, yeah. which I don't think have completely gone away. Um, it's, it's clear that, you know, it's a, it's a great Brazilian trait of not learning your lesson the first time around. It seems that this is, is the case again. Yeah. And I mean, usually when a Brazilian player gets sold to European country, um, there's an, an agent, shall we say, um, at work. I, I think one of the things that's quite interesting about this potential transfer is um, I've only read a little bit about this. So I don't really know, like, the real detail, but... Obviously, there's, you know, there's a lot of Qatari money in PSG and there's the 2022 World Cup coming up. And I think there's some suggestion that um, that there are some links there that, you know, a bit like how there was, there was um, talk when he was younger of Neymar staying in Brazil until 2014 with the World Cup. 
Um, he ended up going in 2013 in the end, but whether they want to use Neymar as much as a kind of marketing tool with the with the kind of Qatari World Cup in, in mind in five years, because Neymar should still um, be a regular Brazilian international. He should still be, you know, unless something really, really goes wrong in his career, he'll he'll almost certainly be involved in that World Cup. So I, I don't know if that adds another dimension to the deal. Um, but does that, not, does that not give you massive alarm bells? I'm thinking yeah. you know, from, from, from the national team stance here, you're moving the year before a World Cup to a completely new challenge, as you say, completely. He's been in that Barca front three as, as his comfort zone. He does very, very well there. And let's face it, Neymar firing on all cylinders is the best chance of this country doing well in, in, in 2018. As much as I don't like the guy, you know, I, I admit that we need him firing. And my concern would be that, you know, maybe he goes to PSG, he doesn't, you know, he finds a different world there, a different way of going, and it has a detrimental effect. I find it bizarre that, that, that this season of all seasons is the one uh, he makes the move, because he could still do it next season, Tim, and still have yeah. the same effect on Qatar. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, I think uh, if you ask Cheech what he would prefer, I'm sure he would prefer for the player to stay at Barcelona, to keep uh, playing with Suarez and Messi and keep winning 4-5-0 every other week. Um, quite frankly, I'm, I'm sure he'd much prefer that and kind of say, right, and in 2018, go fill your boots. But I don't know. It, it seems like PSG might have had a bit of encouragement. I think the way his Barca contract is structured is that his release clause goes up every year. So I think it's something like 222 million euros at the moment. I think next year that jumps to 250 million euros. Um, whether that makes a lot of odds to PSG, I'm not sure. Whether they've had some encouragement that this might be a good time to do the deal. Um, it, it does seem like there's there's more to this than meets the eye. And I think um, one of the things, you know, like Austin was saying, it's kind of difficult to peg the story is because for once, this doesn't really seem to be hugely media generated. It seems to be, it, it feels to me like something's been going on behind the scenes and someone's picked up on it. It doesn't, it doesn't really feel like that there's been like, you know, deliberate leaks um, anywhere. Um, or, you know, that Neymar's agent, it, it doesn't feel like he's spoiling for another new contract. You know, I know he only signed one a couple of months ago, but that doesn't usually stop uh, players in his position angling for another one. It, this doesn't feel like that. Um, and actually, the player himself has been a little bit circumspect. So it, 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 feel, it feels really weird. But yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if, if his his you know, father is um, kind of front row and centre um, in all of this and obviously wouldn't make any accusations um, to that extent. But yeah, it, it feels like this is a deal that has much more than just football, um, much more, it's about much more than just a football player because really, even if, Neymar, and, and I know for PSG winning the Champions League is a big thing, right? But even like, does that still make him worth 220 million euros winning the Champions League? Um, it still feels like overpaying if that's the only thing you're buying him for. They're going to win Liga anyway. So it does feel like that this deal's got a bit of another dimension to it. And obviously Neymar's an incredibly marketable player. And it, and it feels like you know that, that'll appeal to him um, being, being the man. Um, and it feels like PSG might want to use a bit of that kind of marketing stardust as well. Well, listen, just to close out here, you know, we, we talk about a, a transfer of 222 million euro. 
Uh, one for you, Austin, in the form of Luana Gremio, who it, uh, has come out since you did your pod on him there last week, that he can be lifted for 17 million euro, loaned back to Gremio uh, until January and then to Europe. Now, this, while I, I don't think he may suit the Premier League the very best, this offers a great bargain to somebody around Europe. Yeah, I certainly think so. If I was running a European club, I would absolutely do that deal. I think Gremio are most concerned with keeping him until December. Uh, the only question mark left there is World Cup for Luan. I think a move in January could be a little bit shaky for him, especially with an eye towards June 2018 and a World Cup. But on all other fronts, from the club perspective for Gremio, from a club perspective for a European club, that price, I think, would be right in the sweet spot. And I think you probably have a lot of resale value down the line. That's a move that I would do. And he's a player... Uh, obviously profiled on the spotlight pod that I am absolutely enamored with. I think he's fantastic. Uh, I think Luan's been ready for a move to Europe probably since the Olympics, but I think where he was sensible and perhaps Gabigol wasn't was the Olympics finished very late in the European window. And so Gabigol's move was very rushed. He didn't really get the right club. I think his agent, uh, Wagner Hibero, who is, yeah, he's, he's a typical agent, shall we say. So I think Luan was perhaps sensible not to go then, even though that was when his, his stock was at his highest. If I was um, a kind of decent level uh, European club, I would I would absolutely look at doing that. You know, if I was uh, Porto or Villarreal or someone like that, um, one of those kind of step clubs where you prove yourself before you make the big what before you make the big move. The 28 World. 18 World Cup does complicate it, but I feel like Luan's in that sweet spot now that perhaps Lucas Lima was in 18 months ago. And Lucas Lima didn't pull the trigger on the move. And I think he made a mistake. Um, Often players leave Brazil too young, but I think Lucas Lima stayed too long. Um, And I think Luan, he's 24 now. And I I think he's done the right thing by waiting. But I really feel like now's the time for him. And if he doesn't do it, you know, in the next kind of year to six months that actually he might start to tail off a bit and might start to kind of uh, stagnate a little even. So I think for a player and, and, for, and for a good club in Europe, that is a deal I would absolutely take, yes. Would you fancy him in the, the APL, Tim? Because I, th- I don't think that that's the place for him. You know, I know no. Liverpool had been linked with him and, and you know, a lot, of, a lot of our fans came to me and what do you think of him? I don't watch a terrible lot of him, but what I've seen, I just don't think he's, he's, he's the physicality for it. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not. I, I, I tend to think not the Premier League either. Funnily enough, I think Liverpool is pretty much the only team Uh, like kind of good Premier League team I could have seen him fitting into because of this very fluid front three that they play where there's not really a fixed striker Um, and you know I think that kind of a system is tailor-made for Luan the problem for him at Liverpool is that you know he'd be fighting for a place with Firmino and Coutinho and he probably wouldn't and and Mane and and you can't see him muscling past those three really and two of them uh, you know, certainly Firmino, he's competing for a place with the, for the Brazilian national side. So it wouldn't be a good move from from that respect. Um, I, I don't think the Premier League's quite right for him. I, I think Italy, Spain or one of the big clubs in Portugal would be a much better move. 
Listen, I, I couldn't disagree with you on that. And I'll say, it's, you know, with uh, Salah coming out of Liverpool as well, it, it, it yeah. sort of closes that door completely yeah. for him. But listen, we'll leave it there for this week because we've rambled on quite a bit here, but uh, we're, we're covering 18 ga- or 16 games um, all in one go and where we stand. So hopefully next month we'll be able to get into the games a little bit more. Tim, first of all, thank you very, very much for, for appearing. It's been wonderful talking to you finally. Uh, just where can we find you on Twitter? Anything you want to plug? far away yeah sure so I'm uh, at Stilberto um, on Twitter I, I largely write about Arsenal but I do um, write about Brazilian football for a site called Samba Fuch um, and particularly when the kind of Brazilian uh, qualifiers come around I, I tend to do quite a bit of uh, in-depth coverage around that time um, which probably um, the kind of the listeners of this particular podcast will dig more than my weekly ramblings about Arsenal. So yeah, I, I do a, a fair bit of writing about Brazilian football, but specifically the Brazilian national team. Well, there you go. Give the man a follow. And yourself, Austin, what if, I know you've got a bit to plug and where can we find you far away? I am at Austin underscore James 906 on Twitter, uh, doing plenty of Brazilian stuff, South American stuff. We've got a whole host of spotlight pods out. Uh, we're running through Colombia right now. We had Simon Edwards on for a couple shows. Uh, really happy with how those turned out. New Watford signing Juan Camilo Hernandez just came out. There'll be a couple others coming out this week. Last week, we profiled a, a pair of Brazilians in Luan, who we've talked about a bit on this pod, and then Wendell, who's a defensive midfielder who's been impressing at Fluminense, as well as just plenty of others. Um, those will keep coming. There's an endless pool of players to choose from. So expect to see a lot of spotlight pods. Uh, Libertadores is still a bit away, but it's around the corner. It'll be here before you know it. And I believe we were trying to round up a South American football show here sometime soon as well. So be on the lookout for that. Plenty of podcasts. Brazil will come fast and furious. Big weekend coming up this weekend. All of the top four are playing each other. Flamengo visit Corinthians. The debut of Diego Alves in goal for Flamengo should be interesting. Uh, And then Santos Gremio as well. So it should be a very, very good weekend in the Brasilia Down. Kind of your last couple of weekends before the European year kicks off. Uh, So if you ever wanted to check out Brazilian football... I hesitate to say this because now saying this, the games will probably be terrible. But check it out this weekend. See what Flamengo and Corinthians give you. Hopefully it'll at least be exciting. And it, it'll definitely be a good atmosphere at the Atlanta Corinthians. And if you want to, just go back and watch uh, Palmeiras against Flamengo. Great game of football. If, if that doesn't buy you into Brazilian football, nothing will. Uh, but as you rightly say, it can be it can be dodgy enough at times with games. Listen, from WFI's point of view, as Austin said, there'll be two more uh, spotlights coming out. One tomorrow, one on Friday. Um, I have a Russian pod that should be out tomorrow uh, from Russian Football News. Uh, Sound of La Liga are recording this week. And, and as Austin said, hopefully another South American show. So it's all there. Also coming uh, is our new scouting pod um, with Lee. And we're doing the second edition on the Bundesliga, I believe, tomorrow. The first one was really, really popular. Um, I'm sort of overwhelmed with, with the amount of uh, reception it got. Really, really good pod. So if you haven't checked that out, it's on the feed two or three down. All on that, just one last thanks to Tim for appearing and Austin. And thanks to the listener. Until the next one, it's goodbye. Atlético Goianiense, Curitiba e São Paulo. Boa!